Welcome to another Charity Chat podcast. I'm Osman Mughal and I'm delighted to be speaking with Paul Gillespie today. Paul is the founder of Giving is Good and is a philanthropy consultant. He has previously held senior roles at a number of organisations, including WizKids and Comic Relief. In today's conversation, I talked to Paul about research he has recently conducted with over 50 organisations across the sector of all shapes and sizes, focusing on the impact of COVID-19 on philanthropic giving in the UK. We discussed the key areas of his research, such as organisations having increased access to their donors and funders during the crisis, how senior leadership teams have become more actively engaged in philanthropy in the last few months, and how digital engagement in this high-value income stream has proved far more successful than first thought. While we touch on the numerous challenges that COVID-19 has presented philanthropy teams within the last few months, Paul also outlines a number of key opportunities organisations have taken advantage of during the crisis, which may be here to stay. We also discuss what is the new normal for philanthropy, and Paul also outlines steps organisation could take if there is a second spike of COVID-19 to engage with their donors more effectively than the first time around. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast itself. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Gillespie. He is the founder of Giving Is Good. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you, Osman. Absolutely delighted to be on it. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you on, Paul. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation, particularly as I'm a philanthropy fundraiser myself. So before we get into the research findings that you have been working on for the last couple of months since the outbreak of COVID-19 and working with organisations to pull together that research, what I thought would be a good start is for our audience to get to know you a little bit more. So I wondered whether you can just give us a brief overview of your career, including the key roles and responsibilities that you've held prior to your current role as founder of Giving is Good. And then perhaps we can launch into what really attracted you to the non-for-profit sector and particularly specialising in philanthropy fundraising. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. Um, Well, in terms of my career, um, I can't quite believe I've now been working for more than 30 years. Um, It's been a great journey so far. Um, When I look at it, I look at it in terms of three lives or three phases, Um, corporate, not-for-profit, and as you say, latterly, consultancy. Um, After studying philosophy and ethics at university, I then went into the corporate world, so my first life. Um, I worked for Procter & Gamble and then Bristol-Myers Squibb in their marketing and sales division. Um, For me, it was an incredible grounding in general management. And to be honest, I loved it. Um, But there was something that didn't feel quite right. And I knew that ultimately, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life selling products like shampoo for big multinationals. Um, So I, I essentially wanted to work then into an area where I felt like I could make, I guess, a genuine difference to people's lives. And that's really why I then moved into the charity sector. Um, My first role was actually with Save the Children, and I worked in nine countries in Africa, 
started off in Zimbabwe and then ended up in Rwanda. Um, and then I came back to the UK and got my first fundraising role where I headed up public fundraising for Comet Relief. And that was a blast, as you can imagine. Um, that was followed by uh, Director of Fundraising Marketing at WizKids. And then I moved on to the dark side and uh, my third life of working in consultancy and creative giving is good more than 20 years ago. Brilliant. That sounds like such a varied and interesting career. And I've seen a lot of people take that journey from the corporate world into the non-for-profit sector. And I wondered from your perspective, how did the experience and grounding like you've mentioned in the corporate sector allow you to be more efficient and productive in your role in the, in the non-for-profit sector? Yeah, I, I think it was a very good transition actually because when I've always looked at it, I think sales and marketing have a very strong link and, and, and sales to fundraising. So actually, in many ways, the transition wasn't so difficult. So it allowed me to bring, I think, some great sales management and marketing techniques uh, into the sector. Um, so I think the transition was relatively more straightforward than I expected. Um, in terms of the, actually just coming back to when you said what attracted me to the not-for-profit sector, which is links into that, I think I wanted to use those skills, which I just mentioned, for good. You know, I guess um, I had a real passion inside myself, really, to, to drive a life which was all about creating positive social change rather than making money. Um, and then I think the philanthropy, philanthropy piece, um, I guess I was attracted to that, and that's why I've moved into that as a specialism. Uh, I think I've always been drawn to high-value fundraising, um, and especially philanthropy more recently, because I think I've seen in the scale of the opportunity compared to, I think, lots of other fundraising streams, and I think it links into some of the strengths and skills I have as well. Um, so I, I, I think I believe there's a lot that can be achieved in the philanthropic space, and that excites me and has attracted me to work into that space. Um, one thing you may not know, but I actually uh, thought was relevant. You know, I've been working this year on, on delivering a next-gen philanthropy summit. And there's been so much interest around that. With, it's with philanthropists. Um, but it'll probably go now into 2021. But I'll keep you posted because we've got some extraordinary people linked up from Bob Geldof through to Bill Gates to do keynotes. So that should be something... Um, in 2021 it, it was hopefully going to be this year but COVID got in the way a little bit yes COVID seems to be getting in the way of a lot of things these days doesn't it that sounds really interesting that summit could you tell us a little bit more or give us a bit of an idea of what that will be about yeah I mean the core drive for it was that you know the philanthropy is a big opportunity when you look at how much wealth has been giving away I still think it's it's only scratching the surface of what could be given away and what change could happen. So I was looking at getting some really incredible inspirational thought leaders who are doing a lot more and people who attach things, things like the giving pledge, like Bill Gates. So I wanted people who would inspire a next generation of young philanthropists to consider getting much, much more involved and essentially to give more and get more engaged in the charitable sector. And I'd like to touch on something that you mentioned a little bit earlier around the importance of 
philanthropy and the fact that it can make transformational change and it's something that attracted me to philanthropy as well I come from a trust and foundations background and I moved more recently into a trust and foundation slash major donor. I think that that sort of philanthropy is one that can create transformational change, bringing in not only significant um, sums of money, but with networks and philanthropists who can not only give their money, but can give their expertise as well. So the combination of the two is a really attractive offer as a career. Shall we now touch on... Couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Paul. Yeah. Shall we move now to the, the research findings that you've been currently working on and are soon publishing? Mm. As we know, the global pandemic has been around for around five months now and has impacted every section of society. But it has also impacted philanthropic fundraising in the UK and for potentially many months and years to come. What I wanted to get a, a steer from you, first of all, before we launch into the different findings, is what was the particular aim of the research? Because there, were, there is other research out there at the moment. And what is a methodology used to bring all of these findings together? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think what I was seeing, it was clear that you know, the fundraising sector as a whole has been significantly hit by COVID, as we know. And we know it's going to be 25% plus down this year. But what I was being fed back to me by clients who were philanthropy fundraisers was they didn't feel like they had enough knowledge on what was the sector looking like? What was the impact on philanthropy fundraising in the UK at this moment in time? So that's why I embarked on, on the research. The aim of it, was to explore the specific impact of the pandemic on, on philanthropic fundraising. So was income up, was it down, which causes had done well, which hadn't. And I guess also what could we learn as professional fundraisers in this space from it? Um, so they were the key, that was the sort of key aim. The methodology, I mean, it was straightforward. It was really doing, um, qualitative interviews half an hour to 40 minutes structured over zoom predominantly with different charities of different sizes and cause areas to get a representative base and uh, I managed to do 53 interviews across a couple of months which was a huge amount of fun and highly interesting and also insightful in terms of how different the impact of COVID was to those organisations. From those conversations, what were the main learnings? So you mentioned the impacts on different causes. So what did you find? Did you feel that particular causes were hit more than others and were adversely affected? What was the split between the small, medium and larger sized charities in terms of how they could absorb certain external shocks to their organisation? Now that the emergency phase has died down a little, what does the next six and 12 months look like? As you can imagine, probably very uncertain, but what are clients and, and organisations feeding back to you in terms of their understandings of it? Well, I think, I think first of all, overall, and looking at all of those findings and amalgamating those together, the average income was up, philanthropic fundraising income was up 20 0.9%, so almost 21% a 
across the three months from March through to end of May. And that was comparing year on year. So obviously this was also, and I think this is important to state, at a time when teams were operating at roughly 50% capacity. Because most philanthropic teams, when I, the people I spoke to, half of the teams were being followed. So it was quite interesting to see that increase overall when there was that many people obviously on furlough. I have to say a lot of respect to those fundraisers who were working unbelievably. I know you were one of those, Esmond. Unbelievably hard and tirelessly to ensure that sort of income uh, was delivered, which was hats off to you. I think just to build on to your then other questions, there's no doubt about it. Some causes absolutely did fare better than others. Um, those that had a direct link to the crisis, and I'm talking charities that are frontline, social care, homelessness, particularly health charities and medical charities, did particularly well. And in some cases, particularly with those health charities, a number of them, and there's some big charities here, their income doubled in that period, even one of them tripled in that period. So I think there's been, you know, there's been big success from those sort of causes. In contrast, though, research charities, their income was down overall across the piece between 10 and 15%. The small big thing's really interesting. Um, to be honest, there was not really a big trend here. The, the real trend was around the cause area. So if you, it wasn't about whether you were a big or small, it was really to do with whether you were a frontline charity, could you connect your cause to COVID? Could you make it relevant in the emergency? Or, which was harder obviously for research charities and also animal charities, how could you make yourself more relevant? It wasn't actually, interestingly, about that small versus big. I think your final sort of question, if I'm right, this, you know, that transition, that new normal, where, where, where are we heading? I mean, it's, I, I mean, to be honest, that's the million dollar question. And I think, it, you know, it depends in some ways how optimistic you are as an individual or not. I think where I'm seeing is that I naturally am probably more optimistic. I believe that even with a second wave, that I think philanthropists can step up again. And provided we put the right things in place, I think we could see a second wave of philanthropy. On my more pessimistic days, you know, the, the, the income's been lifted because of obviously people bringing their gifts forward. But the truth is, I think only, only time will tell, to be honest, Isman. Absolutely, Paul. And I think the information that you've provided and the research findings are very interesting and insightful. And I recommend everybody, once it's released, to have a look at them, because I think it's really important that the sector understands what the facts and what the findings um, come out as. It's really interesting that you mentioned that there was no significant trend in the small, medium and large size charities and the differences between them. Because what we've been hearing on the third sector, civil society, etc., are that the smaller organisations are finding it more problematic and challenging in overcoming the COVID-19 crisis, partly because they may not have the reserves or the financial clout to do so. 
So that's where I wanted to delve in a little bit further and evaluate some of these points that you've raised. Obviously, COVID-19 has been challenging and we don't know whether there is going to be a second spike or not. But what particular challenges have you heard clients and organisations say to you? How have they tried to overcome them? But also, I wanted to hear your perspective about what are some of the opportunities? Because in this time of COVID-19, we can become a bit pessimistic and negative. But what are some of the opportunities that you found that people are latching onto, whether it be the organisations or even the philanthropists, funders that they're working with? Yeah, great. I mean, I think, I think the, there's no doubt that uh, what I call the Corona Coaster has thrown up a raft of, of challenges, no doubt, for the sector and philanthropy fundraisers and for philanthropists as well. Um, but there are opportunities, and I'll, 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 I'll touch on that later. I think the, um, some, of the th- some of the themes, some of the big ones that have come out in terms of some of the challenges, I think have touched on capacity. You know, as I say, 50% of, and it is a real issue, 50% of teams are furloughed. But in some cases, some of my clients, which had teams of four or five, ended up only having one person actually working in the team. And I think in reality, the only way they could respond then was really focusing and prioritizing which significant donors they really, really focused in on. So that's, that's one thing that was, I think, a real challenge. I think in terms of um, another one that's really interesting is transactional versus relationship fundraising and authenticity in there. And there's no doubt, and you know this, um, but authenticity, as we know, is, is, is a fundamental guiding principle for of fundraising with philanthropy. And it's, the, it's at the heart of building trusting relationships, as you said at the start. And, and to be honest, the majority of people I spoke to, and I think this is fascinating, talked about how they'd built up extraordinarily authentic relationships with their supporters they'd never done before in, in a different way. And many of them talked about how they'd turned into therapists. And I thought that was fascinating where they, in a way, COVID had brought, it was a leveler, and it had brought people together and philanthropists, whether you're a philanthropist or a fundraiser, we were sort of all in this together. And we were all facing challenges with maybe our parents or in our community. So that was, that was fascinating as a leveler. But then that allowed many fundraisers, I think, to build an even deeper, more authentic relationship. So that was, in a sense, a challenge, but also an opportunity. The transactional bit, which is, I think, been a real challenge for some people I've spoken to, is that there's no doubt a number of organizations have felt deeply compelled to push their donors probably harder than they would have done normally. Because I think because of the significant financial pressures their organizations have been under, and this does relate actually to some smaller organizations in particular. And so they feel that they've moved a bit more away from authentic to transactional and almost pushed too hard to get those gifts because they've almost needed them to keep their charities afloat. And so that's why I think some of those small organizations seem to have done all right in the short term. But the question is, have they potentially damaged those relationships in the long term? We don't know, but that was an interesting thing that I've seen from this research. I think the final thing, which, is extra- which I find extraordinary, and if we cast ourselves back to 
December or January of this year, you know, would this move to digital um, stewardship or digital relationships, obviously lockdown has created a world where our number one way of engaging with these people is by, by digital. And what's extraordinary about that is that we've moved as a sector very quickly. And actually, because everyone's been at home, really, it's allowed us to get to people that we would not necessarily have been able to get to so quickly. So I think that's been an opportunity that people have really turned around quickly, becoming good at digital and actually building or, you know, those authentic relationships. And I think my final part on, on that, which is, again, is a sort of, is that move towards CEOs doing one-to-ones with donors they may not have spoken to for a while and those being set up. But I think the big thing that's really come through is how successful webinars have been, whether you call them webinars or not, but gatherings of senior people. And in fact, the conversion rate I've seen is two to one in terms of invites to turning up. And more than half of those webinars have delivered income as well. And some significant income, I think half a million was the highest that I'd seen come on the back of one, which I think is extraordinary. So I think um, thinking about looking ahead and some of the challenges in the coming months, I think there are a number of concerns that have been played back to me in, in this research and through clients. And I mean, really, this is this, how do we transition to business as usual? What is business as usual? What's the new normal? And there's a lot of uncertainty around that. I think the other thing is how do we build a pipeline of new prospects? And how can you forecast and plan for the future? Absolutely, Paul. And what you've touched on in terms of the opportunities and challenges that COVID-19 has presented us is really important, particularly when you talk about the importance of digital. And I think that is here to stay. When you talk about webinars and the engagement of senior leadership to ensure that they are playing an active role in bringing donors on board, but then also some of the challenges that you've just mentioned, building up that all-important portfolio. Because if you don't build up the portfolio in the next six and 12 months, that is naturally going to hit income in the next few years as well. So it's a very interesting point. But as we all know, we've never been through a global pandemic like COVID-19 before. So nobody knows the answers. We're, we're in uncertain territory at the moment. We've spoken about the impact on organisations, the impact on beneficiaries. What would be useful from my end would be to understand how has this affected the wealth of philanthropists and also how are philanthropists responding to COVID-19, particularly as the emergency phase seems to have died down somewhat and how is that going to impact organisational fundraising in the next six to 12 months? I've got some views on it. I don't know all the answers on, on that. But I think from my experience, and I think, as you know, um, and I work and advise a number, of, a number of philanthropists as well. So I've been working closely with people who are working with charities and other people giving, giving money out. So I'm very close to how they feel about now, what it was when it first kicked off and how, what the future potentially looks like and it, and it to be honest the picture 
I mean, it's it is to be very varied. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, there's a real mix about some philanthropists. At first, I was actually really worried that the philanthropists were not stepping up quickly enough to deliver cash to charities who needed it now. That was my first initial feeling. And in fact, what I would say to be fair to philanthropists, I think they then did step up within the, the weeks that came beyond that first massive sort of, basically beyond lockdown. Um, what, what is interesting though, is actually the vast majority of what I'd call the ultra rich, so that sort of 30 million plus uh, category, you know, the vast majority of those have actually become more wealthy during this crisis. I mean, you, I'm sure you've seen a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of stuff on this and out there. You know, even the UBS report, which was published, what, middle of July, you know, 77% of their richest clients' wealth had actually not been affected or had increased that year. And so I think it's been really interesting for me that, um, and I could get onto a bit of a hobby horse in this one, is that, you know, that actually the ultra-rich have not been as affected as badly as most people. And in fact, their wealth is stabilized, if not gone up. I think also what's interesting, I think when it first happened, the stock market and investments and other things just went into complete freefall. Um, and so there was so much uncertainty about businesses, about money, you know, that actually some philanthropists almost froze because they were not sure exactly what the longer, mid, the short, mid, long-term impact to their wealth, their businesses and everything was going to be. What I, what I would say, and, and, and talking to, uh, spoken to three philanthropists today, you know, what has happened since the middle of March through now to early August is, I mean, the markets have come back very strong. Um, there's still clearly a way to go. But actually, I still believe, and this is probably my more optimistic head, that philanthropists are genuinely very well positioned to help us moving forward. But we need to get a number of things right to make sure we can unlock that the level of income and the money they have available to us. So I think what does the next six to 12 months look like? Well, I don't 100% know, and no one obviously does. And it will depend on, I mean, if there is a second wave and it hits us really hard again, I think there will be an opportunity to do, go back and, you know, ask for more money, look for different ways to engage those philanthropists. But I think we, we have to be, look at different ways and be canny about how we can secure that income going forward. I believe that money's there. That's what I'm saying. That's really reassuring to hear that organizations have the potential to work with some very well-known philanthropists who are very wealthy to ensure that they can bring in the funding to, to support their beneficiaries at the end of the day, because that is what it's all about. What do you feel organisations can do differently if there is a second spike in COVID-19 that perhaps they didn't do the first time around in order to 
make sure that they engage more effectively with philanthropists? Yeah, I think, I think one thing that was really clear in, in the research was this, what I call agility. And this was an ability to get to philanthropists incredibly quickly. And by what I mean by incredibly quickly is to get the right sort of appeal that was compelling enough to their philanthropists almost instantly. That was a, rem it was a real success factor that came out of the research that if you responded incredibly quickly, and by quickly, I mean within the first week or so of the crisis hitting, then you were much more likely to secure significant income. And I think three, three out of five of the organizations who actually responded within almost over the weekend of the first crisis, they, their income increased by 50% overall in the overall period. And I think there was something about that getting in there. It's almost first to market. I know when it comes to second time round and a second wave, it is, I guess, different because it's not about necessarily being first to market. But I think it's about positioning the impact it's having to your organization and being really crystal clear on how tough that impact has been and is being and that how tough the second wave, if there is one, is having on your organization. But I think it's about agility, quickly getting that proposition to your donors if that happens. That's really useful advice. Thank you, Paul. In the report, you have eight overall themes of your findings, some of which we've already touched upon, including digital engagement, the fact that leadership, CEOs, trustees are more involved in engaging and speaking with major donors, particularly through means like webinars. Mm. We've just spoken about agility and access to major donors and having those conversations more openly given the emergency need for them. Something that we haven't touched on that I would like to is about internal collaboration and how that has accelerated and the need for that because of COVID-19. So what were your findings around that? Because I found that a very interesting point. Yeah, this was fascinating. Um, uh, it was really, it was the, so I heard a lot of people say it's the first time that fundraising has been really listened to within our organization. Now, I know that's not the case for all organizations, but a lot of people said um, the way that services and fundraising work hand in hand, we've never, ever seen anything like it before. The, you know, one organization said normally for us to create an appeal or a proposition and working with services and fundraising hand in hand to do that typically takes us 12 months, six to 12 months to do that. They, what I was played back to me, and again, by many organizations, where we were creating extraordinarily powerful appeals and microsites and what impact this would create, and et cetera, et cetera, with our services team in a matter of days. One major household name said, in three days, we, we spent literally three days as a team, one team. It was like fundraising, services, communications, 
we literally sat down together and bottomed out the most powerful proposition we'd ever done for our organization and we did that in the space of hours and it and it wasn't about getting it absolutely perfect it was about getting it 95 percent of the way there but getting something to our donors and supporters quickly but working in collaboration to ensure we did this i mean the the, the probably the phrase i heard more than anything was with the sense that we've never experienced a time when there'd be more internal collaboration to create something to make sure we could create change. I found that deeply fascinating. At the same time though, I did speak to some of these organizations. I don't, I should, I don't know why I'm not laughing, but, but it's irony in a way. And I, I spoke to them a month or two later and they said, already things are slipping back to what they used to be like where um, there's a sort of more silo feeling and actually getting the right proposition now is taking longer so it was almost interesting it, you know people all hands were on deck when covid hit everyone felt they were in the same place and everyone recognized the need to collaborate i think what we have to as a sector learn in this um, not just philanthropic fundraisers, is we can work much more with more agility, we can collaborate stronger, we can work really quickly and more dynamically. So I just hope that's not lost. I would certainly echo the point that you made, Paul. I've been working in the sector myself for around eight years and I haven't seen that level of collaboration at such speed that we saw in the last couple of months. And I think there is a lesson here for us as a sector to take away and pandemic or no pandemic, I'm putting that to aside for the moment. If there is organizational willingness and a drive to ensure that there is true and genuine collaboration, it can work. And all departments need to work collaboratively together to ensure that we are there and we, most effectively serve our beneficiaries because that's the end point despite whatever the journey is the end point is that our beneficiaries are provided with the most effective programs available to them so there's certainly a lesson in there for us as a sector to take yeah. away uh, uh, absolutely absolutely and it's good to hear that from you i think you know it's absolutely a lesson for the sector to take away i think i think there were re this this came through with access is the theme this came through in every conversation so it was it was such a strong theme and i think it's a real learning again for an opportunity for the sector that this ability to access major donors was extraordinary you know as we as i said earlier everyone was at home and people were willing to take half an hour zoom conversations and some people it's can be very difficult to get some major donors. And those supporters, key supporters, made the time. I think there were some great quotes in, in the sector and some great quotes in the research. And my favorite was that more conversations in the past two months than in the past two years. I think this, this made me laugh because actually, it, it, you know, we would never have thought of moving to digital and it's not necessarily where we completely want to stay but there's definitely an opportunity to be able to continue 
major donor stewardship on a digital platform as well as hopefully in a real life scenario as well i think that combined approach would be extraordinarily potent actually um just on the accelerate i think the accelerate one was interesting as well because again there was that sense of many people said it accelerated the cultivation process and that ability to secure gifts and actually you know that would have taken a lot longer and I probably the quote on that that made that probably summed it up most was about more asks of high value donors in the first six weeks of lockdown than had been done in the year before and so there was something I guess about the emergency there's something about this extraordinary time that we've all been through we've never been through before that allowed us to do that but it did say to me is there a way where we can think about as fundraisers accelerating the process? So that's just something to, to reflect on, I think. Those are two very valuable and useful insights, Paul, particularly your point around accelerating that journey with philanthropists, but also your first point around using digital as a means to access philanthropists. And as you've mentioned and touched on before, and as we know in philanthropy fundraising, it's all about relationships, relationships, relationships. I think as a sector, we need to be careful because philanthropy thrives on relationships and that face-to-face -face interaction can never be replaced. So it'll be interesting to see in the next six and 12 months moving forwards and even more longer term, how organizations incorporate that digital element to access the major donors or other funders in the philanthropic space, but are very wary that nothing can replace that face-to-face -face interaction. And I'm just conscious that we don't want to, just because we've had to deal with the, the digital element for the last few months, we don't continue that in its entirety as long as it's, you know, as long as, as long as it's safe to meet people face-to-face, -face, we do so. I just wanted to know yeah. your thoughts on that. Well, you know what, to be honest, I think, I think you've summed it up brilliantly. I think at the end of the day, nothing does ultimately replace face-to-face. -face. I mean, I, you know, I think digital for me is a sort of, in a way, it's been a, it's been a bonus. It could be something that supplements and supports our incredible work with philanthropists. There's no doubt about that. But at the end of the day, to nurture our relationships in the best way possible face-to-face, -face, I genuinely can't believe will be replaced. The other thing is, as you know, to build that pipeline and co-relationships or people we're trying to engage into the organizations it's very hard to start the sort of digital relationship cold and it is you know that sort of you can you can move it to that to a degree if you have a relationship but if you haven't it's much harder and that does worry me that if we are in if we can't go out or people don't want to meet and go to this digital world that will have an impact that could could be negative particularly on trying to attract new donors to our to our supporters certainly and you you make a really good point about engaging cold prospects face to face and i think what this pandemic has taught us is the value of our current and warm supporters i think organizations can go towards the idea of let's get as many major donors on board and other philanthropy funders on board which is important because it's there to ensure that the next two three years down the line you have sustainable funding in place but it's also an important point is that we mustn't forget 
the relationships that we've already developed with the majority of our philanthropic funders and the value that they can provide to us in this crisis i'm sure that the vast majority of that funding has come from major donors or other philanthropic funders that were known to that particular organization um, and i know from the research that you know organizations haven't been particularly successful in getting a significant amount or transformational amounts of funding from the coal from coal donors so it's just an important way in which we frame the discussion and yes coal donors are important because we always want to cultivate new opportunities but we mustn't forget the the important value that warm donors bring to the organization as well uh, i mean to be honest in this research and in, in life and my experience of philanthropists and i'm sure yours the your warm supporters are are gold dust i mean they they are they have they have delivered virtually all of this growth that we've seen and they have been extraordinary and to be honest what it says to me is we cannot and we know this we cannot thank those sort of people enough in some ways but they have been worth their weight in gold literally um and yeah yeah so no i, I agree i agree with you wholeheartedly for some organizations it's really made them know who are their real supporters. And so there are people who they've thought would step up and we're getting close to being, you know, significant contributors to their programs and they haven't stepped up. And so I think some organizations have said to me, we now know who are, almost it's showing true colors, who are the people we have to really focus on reprioritize efforts moving forward so i think that's been quite interesting it's sort of like it's almost like uh, it's shown who are the absolute true supporters of an organization and some people have fallen by the wayside so i think that's allowed certain organizations to reprioritize i think they're sort of their donor pool as well And before we wrap up, Paul, there's just one question that I'm sure people uh, would like the answer to. We've discussed this report in some level of detail, but where can people find out more about the report and the findings of this research that you've done? Yeah, well, I, I mean, you are the first person to get the sort of like the insider headlines. And of course, I wanted to come to you first, Usman, and, and your amazing podcast. Um, what the, <laughs> the actual uh, so the final report and all the findings won't be pulled together until the end of this month so the end of August and um, and they'll be I'm sure available via my website LinkedIn Tripass and I know that I think that you are, are going to also have links out there as well aren't you as well so i think there'll be a number of ways people can access it um but it will be completed and available to the sector by the end of august thank you paul it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on not only to understand the insights and the useful learnings from the report that will be published later on this year but really to see your passion and energy for the sector
and just thank you for the amazing work that you're doing in a consultancy role whereby you're working with some really big names leading charities and you're providing support to them to ensure that as a sector we are more effective um, at serving the beneficiaries that we are here to to serve so i'd just like to thank you very much for your time really appreciate having you on and i'm sure we'll do a podcast very soon about the future of philanthropy perhaps the start of next year that would be wonderful and and can i also say Matt, thank you so much for getting me involved it's been an honor to be involved and, and to do this interview let's just keep calm and carry on fundraising that's that's my motto we've just got to we will work our way through it we'll come out of the stronger that's what i believe we will come out stronger thank you very much paul It was an absolute pleasure speaking to Paul and his passion and energy for the sector came across in abundance. There were a number of topics that we discussed in today's conversation, but my main takeaways were, firstly, COVID-19 was a leveller where everyone was in a similar situation and therefore it allowed for more authentic, direct and fruitful conversations with donors over a shorter period of time. Paul mentioned that one organisation he spoke to said there had been more conversations in the last two months than in the last two years. Secondly, some organisations who first responded to COVID-19 after lockdown saw their income increase over 50% compared to the same time last year. If there is a second wave, it is important that organisations are crystal clear about the impact that they will have on beneficiaries and what will happen if support is not provided. And thirdly, across the board, shortly after lockdown, organisations found that different departments collaborated in a way which they had not seen before, working to get emergency funds and appeals out in just a couple of days. The main challenge organisations are facing now is preparing for the new normal and building a pipeline of prospects. At some point, they may no longer be able to turn to the same funders as before and will need to seek other avenues for further funding. And this is not helped by an uncertain future with a potential second wave. We at Charity Chat would like to thank the thousands of employees and volunteers within the sector that are continuing to serve their beneficiaries. Thank you for listening and that leaves me to thank our corporate sponsors Giant Squid Audio Lab, sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Aksumit for our website design. RRUR Photography for our pro bono images. And Forrester Fools, who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now. 